Happy High Achiever doesn't want to sell you stamps. Happy High Achiever doesn't want to help you hire the best candidate. Doesn't want to help you build a website, get a mortgage real fast. Happy High Achiever does not want to send you three free meals every week that you can prepare with your family. Happy High Achiever wants to get you unstuck in your job. Have you hit difficult workplace hurdles despite a dope-ass resume? Happy High Achiever is here to help. Courtney Bryan, Happy High Achiever's founder, started the company to provide support and resources for high-achieving individuals who hit professional obstacles, sometimes for the first time. You interested? Check out happyhighachiever.com backslash upzones to learn more, join the newsletter, and access a special Friends of the Pod rate on coaching packages. Our sponsor is Happy High Achiever, and this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself, Davey. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Hello, good people of Seattle. Uh, while you are hearing this, I will very likely be on the island of Cuba. Um, Recording this a few days in advance, getting ready for my flight to take my honeymoon with my wife, Michelle. So I don't have good news. Or I, what I mean to say is I don't have any timely news updates to rant about here like I do sometimes at the start of the show. But I, I think it's something kind of interesting um, to, to document where we are as we take this honeymoon. And you know, Michelle and I have been looking for houses. We've talked about, I've talked about that before. And, uh, it, you know, the, the craziest thing is... We're barely, barely at that threshold of buying, right? We're not really able to afford anything big or fancy. Not that we would want that. We're, I'm very pro-urban. I think Michelle is too. Um, but we've put in three offers and one was outbid. You can't win them all. But the other two we got. And in both cases, they failed inspection. And, you know, I'll spare you the details, but in both, in, in especially in the, that third case, the final one that really frustrated us, and we said, "Screw this, we're going on our honeymoon, and we're not going to uh, look for a while." But it was it was a house that really looked beautiful from the outside, and and, and from the inside as well, but just sort of walls in, you know, um, where the only meaningful explanation for just the parade of horrors—that's what Michelle called it in a text message to me. Uh, that was underneath the walls and the electricity and the piping and some of the groundwork and asbestos and you name it. Uh, the only really sort of Occam's razor explanation, the simple explanation, is that it was an act of fraud, you know, gentle fraud. I, I don't know that someone could go to court and, and lose on it, but, um, it, you know, that this person intentionally obfuscated all of the problems with the house by painting over them in a metaphorical sense and sometimes a literal one, um, putting in a cap where there were electrical problems, closing off a, a room where there was asbestos. Um, and it all stems from a, a single problem, right? Which is that it's an attractive event, investment to buy a house and, and sell it, right? Rather than a place to live. And I know I'm kind of the free market guy here in the housing debate, but it's just very clear to me that this um, American ideology of housing as an investment, which, by the way, most economists disagree. They don't think 
it's a smart move to put all of your wealth in one bucket like that, right? I mean, there's other reasons to buy a house, and we all should have that opportunity and that ability. It, it gives us a lot as citizens and people, but it's not a great investment. And in the words of Daniel Hertz at City Observatory, the only thing worse than a world in which homeownership doesn't work as a wealth building tool is a world in which it does work as a wealth building tool. Uh, You know, the two pillars of American policy in housing, right? Homeownership as a way to build wealth and housing affordability, they're at odds with each other. And right now what we have, especially given the supply uh, problems that we have in urban settings in Seattle in particular, is the investment side is winning. It's still a bad investment. It's still a risky investment. Every time the market corrects, all those homeowners, especially the ones that just barely eked it out, uh, you know, they take the hit. But the rest of us can't buy. And the rest of us are subject to flippers, fraudulent flippers. I mean, there's good ones out there once in a while. Um and, and the reason that that's even a, a market, the reason that that's even something possible, that it's even in the realm of possibility, is because of housing scarcity and because we treat housing like an investment. Uh, folks who want their house to increase in value beyond what is reasonable, beyond inflation, um, by limiting scarcity, by limiting supply, excuse me. And, and I mean, if that's not the premise of the show, I don't know what is, but it's just interesting to live that now as we go and look and just bang our heads against the wall, we save for a decade and, and, uh, you know, jerks like this guy that tried to pull fast one on us, uh, are all over the city. And the guest this week is John Krasilici, outreach director at Cascadia rail, a really cool organization dedicated to bringing uh, high speed rail to the Cascadia region. Think of a red line from Vancouver down to Portland and then, Another couple red lines out to, say, Ellensburg and the Tri-Cities, maybe Walla Walla even. It's a pretty cool project, and it's actually less sci-fi than you think. In his spare time, John is a geostructural engineer, retrofitting buildings around the area to resist earthquakes. And he's got a calm, cool tone and a great way to frame up some of the issues around transportation in the region that I just think you might want to hear. Check out John. Page right, but uh, you know I've interviewed I've had John on the show. I don't know yeah. if you've heard that. Yeah, I saw that. He yeah. he did it. I mean, that was one of my favorite episodes. I mean, he just talked about his life. He's a fantastic speaker. Yeah, he's yeah. really good at what he does too. Mm-hmm. And he's jumped around a little bit. Like he got he was involved with Seattle Subway for a while. Yeah, same. That's how I met him. Okay, so you were yeah. you were involved in that stuff too? Yeah, that's how I got involved in a lot of things. With Seattle Subway. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that was kind of like a very big moment in my life that I didn't realize was a big moment until later. Yeah. Well, we all yeah. have something yeah. like that. I think for me, it was the 08 Obama campaign. Oh, really? I just kind yeah. of wanted to do it. And then it just <laughs> crystallized into this much bigger thing. That yeah. That set me on a trajectory. Of... Exactly. Like I, uh, I was working in the Pike Place Market and I, we, we had a fruit stand, right? And so we donated a lot of fruit or vegetables or whatever that just wasn't quite pretty enough to put out for the crowds. 
mm-hmm. uh, to the food bank that was there. And the food bank was run by this guy named Kevin Futhi. And he was running the volunteer coordination for Seattle Subway. And he had a pin on his jacket, you know, Seattle Subway pin. And I asked him about it. And he was like, oh, yeah, we're trying to get a subway system going. I was like, hey, that's a good idea. And it, I started getting involved in volunteering with them and wound up having a leadership role there and kind of taking over for Kevin yeah. as volunteer coordinator. But through that, I also... I started going down to Olympia from time to time and and testifying and doing that sort of stuff, which I thought was fun. But people would have questions or comments in my conversations with people uh, about technical aspects, and I wanted to learn more of those things. So I started reading, like, planning documents and and some, uh, like, engineering technical documents, like these geotechnical reports. And I thought the geotechnical reports were really cool, and so I went to school for it. Yeah, you're a Seattle U guy, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I did two years at Seattle Central, and then I did Seattle University for undergrad, right. and then I did my master's Berkeley. at Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. You, you you actually went to school kind of later. Yeah, after You took later. the time to, <laughs> to actually determine what was of interest to you, and then you went and studied it, which I think is a different path and pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and then that wasn't sort of a, a planned out thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't not go to school thinking that I would then decide what I wanted to do and right, find right. myself or something yeah, and yeah, then yeah. go to school. I just didn't want to go to school okay. I mean, until fair. until I did. Right. And I had a reason. And that, that actually made things, like, frankly, much simpler for me. Mm-hmm. And I think the big thing for me that was the difference... It's not just knowing what you want. It's also being able to ask people how to get there. Right. Like when I was young, I had a lot of pride and didn't want to. It's the worst know. mix of ignorance and pride. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. <laughs> you don't know anything and you're really, really arrogant or, or egotistical and defensive about not knowing anything. So it, and you, yeah. you can't admit that. Right. Yeah, 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 and yeah. you just lack the perspective. Yeah. yeah. And. And the the way that I kind of phrase it to people is like, you know, if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, what do you do? You just start climbing or do you hire Sherpas? Right. You find people who've been there right. and go with them. Right, right. You know, it's just not that complicated. Yeah, yeah. Like, and right. maybe you could climb to the top by yourself, right. but there's a much worse chance yeah. that you make it all the way there. Right, right. And so it's realizing that, and that helped me a ton because I, I like, before I really started going to school... I reached out to engineering companies that I was seeing on reports. Right. Who I knew were doing good work and asked to talk to their recruiters. It's like, how do I get a job doing this, basically? Yeah. Yeah. But, like, way early. Like, what do you actually care about on my resume? Right. Like, because my professors are all going to tell me the grades are the only thing that matters. But, like, what do you think? Yeah. Let me ask you this. You're going to give me the job. (laughs) This is something that I always puzzle about this. Mm -hmm. Did... In your job, so you're you're now working with a local firm and yeah, doing this that's right. Did that pan out? Like, did the things that they said go do right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you did, and then that's how you got the job, or was it? Yeah, I think it, that it made me a really strong candidate, and more than that, I think it allowed me to accomplish more than I otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. Not just that, like the things in my resume were kind of targeted to things that they would appreciate, right. but that everyone when they're going through school is put in situations where they have to make sacrifices, Uh right? And I knew that if I made those sacrifices, the people at the other end were going to care. Right. Like, I wasn't... You suspected. I imagine there's some faith, right? There's, like, a little leap of faith you've got to take, right? That's true, but they told me. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you know, it, it wasn't just that I imagined they would <laughs> right. care. Right. It was right. that they had told me that right. they would care. And so right. sometimes those sacrifices, you know, they were really challenging, and I, like, didn't want to do them, really. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that that made those decisions a lot easier to do the disciplined thing rather than the thing that's more fun. Right. Because I knew that they'd care, you yeah. know, that it would have some impact. So that's awesome. So then, so yeah, you, you were like, all right, I'm doing this work that leads to this desire to kind of get kind of credentialed and get the education. Now you're kind of professionally an engineer, but you're Mm -hmm. staying still very active on rail and Mm -hmm. on, you know, so you guys had the big win with ST3. Yeah, that was fantastic. A very conflicted day for me. Why conflicted? Because it was the same night as Trump. Winning the presidency, so it was like the culmination of. I guess, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that particular (laughs) marriage of of outcomes. Yeah, yeah, it was like this thing that I'd been working on for years, and I'd always thought it was a long shot, and then it comes off, but then also. The other uh, long shot happened. Yeah, right. Uh, I didn't think about that until just now. I do remember that. I mean, obviously, I remember that very vividly. I, I. a lot of the candidates that I was supporting lost actually. So it was, oh, a, yeah, yeah. It was just wasn't wasn't a great day mm-hmm. for uh, for Ian. But no, so so you're doing that, and then what what brings you to kind of high speed rail? How did you get involved with that situation in that community? So what happened there was that we started because Jonathan, I think honestly, like he is just so connected to everything and has the pulse of kind of the for, for the listeners. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan Hopkins, he, he's uh, got the pulse of what's going on inside kind of the halls of power. Right. I don't know if it's instincts or context or both. Yeah, so Jonathan Hopkins just, is a former guest on the show. Yeah. He, he uh, you know, he, one of the key um, players, I guess, in the, in interestingly enough, in the overturn of Don't Ask, Don't Tell back in the day. Uh, yeah. Had, had, had as, a, as someone who had been sort of through that, that the discharge process there and, and then has been had came here and was really active in Seattle subway and mm-hmm. getting, and then actually was an Uber. It was an executive at Uber. You know, so he's just someone who's, I think really understands how process works and how maybe how the levers get pulled, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's a very capable person. And so we started with him asking me and some other people who'd kind of worked in Seattle subway or other things with him to join him in a barn, talk about, Hey, should we try to make movement on this and try mm-hmm. to try mm-hmm. to get some political and public traction mm-hmm. and get this idea out there? Mm-hmm. Because there'd been a, a small study already that was just very, very, very big picture. Like, mm-hmm. like for instance, it was studying like ridership estimates between Portland, Seattle and Vancouver but just those, like, metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, the entirety of greater Portland. And, like, from Tacoma to Everett is, like, one thing yeah. here. You know, like, no smaller stations, no. Right. So they'd done a little bit of that. And now they're doing more. And that's good. How does like, high-speed rail work in other places? I mean, you know, in, in, let's take Europe. I mean, mm. do they stop in the smaller municipalities? Or is it really usually generally a, a conduit from big city to big so from my understanding, it is uh, often used as a commuter rail solution. And there will be long distance tracks, but not not sort of like coast to coast. Mm-hmm. It is for these kind of 200-ish mile 
trips, mm -hmm. those it can be really effectively served. But if you are needing to construct a commuter rail system, especially in our our neck of the woods, we'd yeah. ha we're having to kind of do this from scratch. Why not just build a really good one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so you can you can. This is probably a dumb question, but it's just the physics of it, right? Mm -hmm. to, to achieve high speed, you sort of need a run rate, right? You need a yeah. You need a yeah, ramp yeah. up. So, so what's you know what distance does high speed rail become a viable? You know, could could, sure. could Tacoma to Tacoma to Olympia be a viable use of high speed rail? Yeah, yeah, it definitely could. So, um, the state has produced travel time estimates. For, you know, there's no selected alignment yet, just sort of very rough ballpark mm -hmm, estimates mm -hmm. that have Tacoma to Seattle at being approximately 15 minutes mm -hmm. and Everett to Seattle as being 10, right. which is, for yeah. me, like, that's just transformative. Yeah. That, would, that would change the yeah. region. Like, downtown Tacoma would suddenly be effectively closer to downtown Seattle than most of Seattle. Right. Right, you know? right, right, <laughs> like, right. I can get to downtown Tacoma in 15 minutes. Right, right. There's not a lot of places I can say that about. Right, and you, I mean, of course, you still have your last mile commuting, uh, first mile, last mile. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that wow. Okay, so, that, so that's something that's always interested me, this idea of like high-speed rail as potentially only viable for long distances, but you're, mm. you're saying it's not... Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that it's. I don't think it's uh, true that it's only viable for long distances. I mean, it, it obviously can't have kind of subway system stop spacing. Right. You know where you're you're going maybe a mile or two or something mm -hmm. that doesn't really work. But you know, Tacoma's thirty miles away. Right. It's right. enough room. And I mean, how realistic is this? Tell me about the vision here. So. This is something that I thought we were going to have to do a much harder sell on mm -hmm. of it being realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, secretary uh, Miller, who is the secretary of the Washington State Department of Transportation, he's the head honcho, mm -hmm. right? They're doing a study. It comes out in June to, to really look at the business case for this. And he was speaking to the House Transportation Committee recently, which is a bill that might include additional funding. And he was talking about just that. He said, you know, people are talking to me about, is this realistic? Mm -hmm. And what he said is that, yeah, the numbers getting thrown around right now are 20 to 40 billion. It's a lot. But to, his context for that number was that if the legislature asked him to add a lane in each direction throughout the state of Washington on I-5, right? From Vancouver, Washington up to the border in Canada, right? It would cost approximately a hundred and ten billion dollars, mm -hmm. and take and, just as long. And not really solve congestion. And yeah, and it would take <laughs> you all day still yeah. to get there. So yeah. it's like, this is expensive, and it is kind of a. It would be a sea change for us, and mm -hmm. it's something that will probably require us to learn to do things we haven't done before. Because Such as what? like what would be build a high speed rail system. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Like. You know, the Washington State Department of Transportation is full of really good, qualified people, but this is not the sort of project they've done before. They're right. going to need to find people who've got some some experience with this stuff. And who does? Where, where is this been there's, done well? There's companies all over Europe, all over Asia. I mean, you know, you look at Japan, you look at Germany, you look at China. There's a lot of, a lot of places that have this expertise, and I'm sure we'll tap some of that. Why doesn't it work here? I, I don't mean why doesn't it work. That, that's a, I take that question back. <laughs> Why does it work politically? So mm, you know, I, I'm i not 100% sure, to tell you the truth. 
I think that some of it could be that there's, this is me just totally guessing, is that it, it can be very difficult to get all of the municipalities to agree to things. Mm-hmm. Like we have, we have a permitting structure that is basically designed for buildings. Mm-hmm. Like when I build a building, I build it in a particular town, right? When you build something like this, it's not in a particular town. It hits a ton of cities, a ton of towns. And, and this line would be hitting two countries, two states in this country, and another one in Canada, you know, a province in Canada. And I think that that just gets really challenging because every, at every point of that permitting process is a, is a potential for failure. You have to design to their specifications and standards, which often have the same intent, but like slightly different wording or your deliverable is a little different. Like you can't just send the report to everyone. So then you've got to reconcile those things and kind of like rationalize those every town and every Mm -hmm. county probably and then every state and then also sort of bilateral national agreements to a certain extent. And and I don't know um, exactly what the political systems in other, in other countries that are more successful at delivering these sorts of like massive infrastructure projects than we've been since you know, the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. but I, the, the ones that I'm aware of, like, you know, for instance, in Norway, they dig these long tunnels frequently and do all this stuff, but they have a strong national government and they have a strong local government, but it's very clear that the local government is not responsible for projects like these, right. that the national government and kind here of runs we, it. We do it a little yeah. And there's a lot of players and that's, I, I think that it was really encouraging to me to see that the money that they are setting aside in the house bill right now that's being considered is three and a quarter million to set up a team of people who'd have a deliverable in June of 2020. And that deliverable is that they have to report on the regulatory environment and how to align this, you know, cause it's, that's going to be the biggest trip tripwire, if you will, anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we need to figure it out. Like I'm, I'm, definitely saying we should have strong environmental regulations mm-hmm. right this should be a high bar to jump over but it should be one bar not just like a hurdle race yeah we're constantly jumping over the same bar but slightly different you know right, it's right. just causes too many issues and then you get into the for lack of a term the kind of nimby component of it where folks maybe don't want the, the construction mm-hmm. or they don't want the disruption they, maybe they don't want to pay the taxes you know what have you how do mm-hmm. you foresee work working with that inevitable challenge yeah i don't i don't know that i want to work with it okay i would i mean i will have to do work because of it Mm -hmm. but i think that what i what we're going to have to do is that we're going to have to sell the outcome of how different it will make people's lives of how it will allow the economic opportunity that's honestly too concentrated in seattle Mm -hmm to make it to our sister cities or in the state and, and amplify that economic opportunity by providing better connections to our sister cities in Portland. How how would it do that? How how would we um, disentangle that opportunity from Seattle? How do do you serve, you know, tri cities with a train? Mm. How does does a train make Portland? So that's a, that's several questions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm good at. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, I think I'll, I'll try to, to tackle that. 
how does it kind of spread the money around? Yeah. For instance, my company has an office in Tacoma, right? As a white collar jobs. We do that because we have a lot of clients in Tacoma and they require kind of the personal touch. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't, we could like, for, but for us, that's, that's important that we have clients there. A lot of people, their clients were in Seattle and their offices were still in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And when traffic wasn't a problem, if your client calls you for lunch, you can make it. Yeah. Right. They'll yeah. say, Hey, there's an issue. We need to talk. Yeah. Come meet me at noon. And they're calling you at 11. And it's right. fine. Right. Yeah. Now that's not really possible. Mm-hmm. And so this would allow businesses that are maybe less established, they can't pay the Seattle re- real estate prices sure, yeah. to set up shop somewhere, but still have access mm-hmm. to the marketplace of Seattle mm-hmm. in a meaningful and competitive way, mm-hmm. let alone the residential development that I'm sure would occur should have uh, should Tacoma have 15 minute access to the jobs in Seattle right well it certainly reduce the supply and demand problem for for housing you could work in Seattle but live in Tacoma you could work in Seattle and live in yeah. wherever and, t- and tons of people already do mm-hmm. but, it's, but it's a tough life it's a, yeah it's tough you it's know? Hard. what is the, what is the commute from Tacoma to Seattle oh, like during rush hour I believe it's on the order of an hour and a half. Like, and the other thing too about that is that when Wastot estimates that, then that's from me having traveled a lot between the offices in Tacoma and Seattle and mm-hmm. stuff, they're 90 minute or they're, they're roughly hour and a half travel time. Is there 90% uh, certainty? Which means that like you are going to be late fairly frequently mm-hmm. if you actually take that seriously. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. people leave a lot earlier. And so they lose just so much of their day, so much of their productivity. Right. I mean, you you could be counting on leaving two hours before you have to be in Seattle. Yeah. And then it's a commute back that's about the same length. And then you get into displacement issues because there's not enough housing being built. And yeah. So who is it that's having to do those kind of commutes? It's a yeah. whole social equity issue that I don't think we, we love to talk about in this city, but it's, it needs to be talked about. And it's, and it's, yeah, displacement, I think also people frequently get too hung up on what's happening today and not what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of people who've moved out already yeah, yeah. and those are the people commuting in from Tacoma often, yeah. you know, and that's a situation we could do better about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Tell me something about like Ellensburg, right? Like how, mm-hmm. how does, I think a lot of listeners would, could just get their mind's eye around, you know, Portland. Mm-hmm. Only because the capital. Yeah, for sure. Probably Tacoma, Seattle, maybe Everett, up to Vancouver. That kind of like, boom, that's a straight line. Mm-hmm. A lot of economic and socioeconomic activity, political activity. What is the, why why the middle of the state? But talk to me about the, what else that high-speed rail could achieve for that part of the state and connecting the two. So that the way that it's been framed by Wastant is that there's kind of phase one and phase two. Mm-hmm. Phase one would be the north-south corridor, which is, you know, it's quite handy for us that right. most of the population centers and everything are just kind of there yeah. in a line. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. But then phase two would be finding a way to get off out to the east side of the state mm-hmm. and connect the communities out there with definitely Spokane. We are agnostic about the routing of that there's so many ways it could go and there's so many 
different different potential choices, whether it's new right of way or upgrading existing right of way mm-hmm. to to maybe not have the 250 mile an hour speed, but try to get it above a hundred so that it's faster than driving, you know, just making significant improvements. But there's a lot of things in my imagination of how it could help. Like we have a really good, uh, wine country Mm -hmm. in central Washington that could become like Napa. Right now people don't fly into Seattle as tourists and go there. Maybe they go to Woodenville, maybe. Right. But this, if this could be less than an hour away, that's a very different trip. And especially with something as easy to understand as getting on the train. Right. You know, they don't have to figure out the roads. They don't have to deal with traffic. They just, they just get on the train and then they're in wine country and stay at a hotel out there or something. So I think there's lots of places where it could help communities. Again, diffusing the economic benefit. Yeah. Of the, the, the Seattle hub. And it's, and it's not just diffusing. I mean, it is, it is diffusing, but it's not just that because it would also grow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, like having you're access. Getting a, you're adding more slices. You're, you're, you're cutting up a pie, but right. it's a bigger pie. Yeah. I mean, there's no chance that Seattle becomes wine country, right? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, this is just access to like better access to a resource so that Seattle makes more money because wine tourists are more willing to come here. They become, you know, Yakima and Wenatchee and all those areas, they become a a better destination because it's easier to access them. So they're making more money. It's just, it's not just that money's leaving Seattle for these communities. It's that everyone's making more money. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What needs to happen? Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) Let's, let's go. (laughs) Let's go. so, So, um, what really needs to happen is that we need to approve this in Washington State. When you I say approve this, uh, first it's the the first thing we're doing is researching kind of the logistics of what this could look like, right? And mm-hmm. What the obstacles be. So when you talk about approving, you don't necessarily mean approving the high speed rail right now. Yeah. So if we're going to take it as kind of like every single step, then yeah. So we we need to get a handle on what our steps have to be. Mm-hmm. which is kind of what this proposed money is for, which I, you know, really hope that they pass because it's, it's a really good first step to, to actually getting things done. Mm-hmm. And then we would need to do outreach in the communities and figure out what they're looking for with this project and build support through that. You know, d- like find a way to deliver what people actually need mm-hmm. through this project and then like identify a governance structure. Right. Yeah, is, it a, is it a BART? Hopefully not, if history is any guide. And this is going to be an interesting... That That's going to be a very interesting question, too, because I don't know... I mean, there's probably something in Europe, right? But mm-hmm. they have the EU to kind of run that a bit for them as well. You know, they don't have the same sort of border controls that we have mm-hmm. with Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be an international Sorry. infrastructure yeah. project, yeah. which mm-hmm. is not really... What we're yeah. used to, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. don't do this a lot. Right. So the governance structure is going to be really interesting, making sure that we have buy-in, and then actually just figuring out a financing mm-hmm. Have plan. you put any thought into that? What is Cascadia Rail thinking about financing? Honestly, like I put basically zero thought into that mm-hmm. so far, and the reason why isn't because I just want to neglect it. It's because it's just too early. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of ways that this could shake out. Right now... This would be difficult to do under our current legal restrictions, but it could have some sort of 
tax increment financing, mm -hmm. where which is where the property value benefits of creating a piece of infrastructure can sometimes be very extreme. And you capture some of that value back mm -hmm. to pay for the project in the first place. Yeah. You know, because I mean, if, if you own a three-story building that's across the street suddenly from a high-speed rail station that can deliver thousands and thousands and thousands of passengers every day, right. Right. your property value is going to become much higher. Much higher. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah, and so how do, we, how do we share some of that back with the project? We could do something like that. There's private financing options even like this is the model that japan uses pretty frequently They're private. yeah a lot of their subway construction was actually private construction mm -hmm. and they do that by allowing the company that is building it to own the land around the station at the end and build high-rises on top mm -hmm. and they'll frequently put shops and things like that inside the station right like right now we kind of have this this now, this is a municipal project, and there's right. no commerce here. Right. But, like, the best sushi restaurant in the world is in a Tokyo subway station. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We could do yeah. things like this. In New York, you actually, ironically, you do see some of that in New York, but it's, it's to my understanding, a holdover from, frankly, a, a more corrupt era when mm. business and government were more, were more intertwined in a, in a, at the local level. And mm -hmm. But it feels to me like a reaction to that era. Which produced some good outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're now seeing, you've now seen a hundred year trend of complete divorce from commercial use of, of municipal land, which is unrealistic, yeah. in my view. I mean, like, I go to the Westlake, uh, you know, station all the time to catch mm -hmm. buses and trains and things, and I wish it had a coffee shop. Yeah. I'm listening, you know, <laughs> right. sometimes I'm tired. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I would love to just be able to grab a coffee. You know? Right, it's, right. Why should that be so hard? Right, that's a fair point. No, that's interesting. I, I often have wondered about even the, we're here in Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. about the Capitol Hill metro stop, why? And I know that the, that, that big apartment complex is going up around it, but I, mm -hmm. I often wonder why it didn't just go up right above it. Mm. You know, why wasn't there a both end in that scenario? Yeah. Right. It's a one story building. That's very strange. So that could yeah. be, yeah, you could really see, I mean, gosh, like multi-use, yeah. uh, mixed use kind of uh, commercial slash residential high rise above mm -hmm. the, you know, the Tacoma yeah. uh, high speed rail stop would be a really effective way to pay for that. Right? Yeah. Well, at least to make a big dent, mm -hmm. as big a dent as you can, right. you know, um, there's a lot of. There's a lot of things. And then, of course, you know, obviously taxes and public financing through that stuff. Um, my sort of crazy dream uh, is that we could get significant federal funding. I think that there's, you know, and, and that right now that looks yeah, very... Un soon, not right now. Yeah. But yeah. if we move forward on this quickly, um, given the, the, the potential for a change in administration in 2020 and potential for uh, some things in the Senate to change right. and the position of our senator in the Transportation Committee right. in the Senate. Um, this project, especially with its international character and the fact that it is obviously a huge investment in infrastructure, which we need to begin doing again. Right. We need well, to but do I mean, even, even Even President Crybaby as I like to call him, <laughs> has been talking about infrastructure. I mean, everyone's yeah. talking about infrastructure. Right. So the question is, what are we going to do? Are we really yeah. going to do it, right? Yeah. Um, 
It would create an enormous amount of jobs. It would actually fix a problem. It is a green technology. Mm-hmm. Like it is better for people to be riding a train that is powered by hydroelectric electricity than it is for them to be burning gas yeah. on their like total four hour commutes every day. Right. Right. They're not enjoying right. anyway, right? This is just better. And it has an international aspect where our relationship with Canada has been a little on the rocks and doing a project together with them like this could be a very good public show of a reset of relations. And then we could get the Olympics to Cascadia. We could have a Cascadia Olympics. That would be fantastic. Right? And the high speed rail. Well, and the World Cup uh, is, I mean, I don't think it would be done in time for this, but the World Cup's coming to America in 2026, I believe. Yeah. 2026. And we're a candidate city. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Did not know that. I think we're actually... Seattle is, yeah. I think we're actually quite likely to, to get one. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the passion for the Sounders here, and that, that, yeah, that's, I didn't know that. But I, I've always thought there, a Cascadia Olympics, I mean, this is way off topic, right? But, <laughs> but, but, but a Cascadia Olympics could, could mirror what happened when Japan and Korea co-hosted the Olympics. And yeah. you, cre- you create a, a place, a, cu- a culture of place, and the commonalities get celebrated, and um, something like a high-speed rail would be an absolute necessity. Mm-hmm. For someone to get from, especially if you had, and I know a lot of the events would be in one city or another city, but if you needed, for whatever reason, to get from Portland to, you know, Vancouver, mm-hmm. right, in, during the time span of, like, these events, like, well, you need high-speed rail, man. Yeah. Right? No, yeah, that's the way to get there, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, it's just going to tie us together in a lot of really positive ways oh, that's great. in my mind. And, and And the other thing, too, is that, like, Vancouver, British Columbia, they are really trying to grow their tech sector mm-hmm. like they have been awarded i think it's 200 million by their federal government to do, just that. To do that right and they have some satellite offices yeah. from microsoft and amazon yeah. and stuff but they could grow those this could really, really dr- do that. dramatically because right now it's like oh well, if you need to actually go meet with a team and work over a problem because a lot of things the phone's not really good enough mm-hmm. you know it's less than an hour you can just go do it. Yeah. It doesn't require you to figure out accommodations. It's, it's a commute. It's, yeah, it's, right. It becomes a commute versus yeah. a trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You, you don't need accommodations or, or going like, you know, I love Portland. Not when we play them in MLS, <laughs> right. but, but most of the time I love Portland and I could like have brunch in Seattle right. and take the train down and hang out at the Saturday market right. and then just come home. Right. It's a it's a different level of access yeah. to all of these right. cities. The convenience, the economic dispersion, or again, the, the mm-hmm. yeah. So, what do people need to do? If someone hears this and goes, "Oh my God, that's that's like the utopia that I want," <laughs> what what can somebody do? Um, well, I would encourage them to get involved with us Cascadia at, Rail. at Cascadia Rail, and I would also encourage them to call their representatives. You know, in, in the state legislature. In the state legislature. Yeah, okay. because that is where this is right now. Mm-hmm. Like, Washington has to move first. Most of the most of the uh, tracks will be here. Most of the line will be here. If we're not on board, there's no project. Right. And they're considering getting on board Right. And there right could now. be a project without Oregon. I mean, in theory, you could have... Yeah, I think... We are necessary, right? We yeah. have to be in right. the project. I, I mean, I think it would be a total shame. Oh, yeah, of course. Right, yeah, right, but... Yeah. But without Washington, yeah, you know, right, it doesn't work. Yeah, so we have to move first if we yeah. want everyone else to get on board. Makes with sense. Us. So yeah, let's 
let's get everybody calling their state representatives and talking mm-hmm. about Cascadia Rail. And mm-hmm. so, hey, we, we end all of our interviews with a segment that we call If You Care About, mm-hmm. You Should. And I know you just kind of gave one of those, <laughs> but I'm going to put it back to you. If You Care About, You Should. Fill in the blanks. Uh, if You Care About connecting our communities and growing the pie and allowing people to quit their part-time job that is commuting, then you should tell people that you care about those things. Call your representatives. Let them know that you want to see them work on the solution. Awesome. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Come on back next year once we have a full high-speed rail system in place. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was Cascadia Rail's John Krasilici. Check them out, CascadiaRail.org. Get involved. Fast trains. Come on. Our sponsor this week is Happy High Achiever. Get involved with them too, man. Advance your career. HappyHighAchiever.org backslash upzones. All music, as always, by The Subcons. Dope opening poetry, as always, by Anthony McPherson. All sound, as always, by myself and Naboo. And as always, this has been a Cascadia Underground production. My favorite. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. We'll see you next week.